the intersection of ideas and action. This is Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. Hello, listeners. I'm Tony Zhou, a Longitude Fellow from Yale University. Today's episode features highlights from a conversation I shared with Brett Faneuf. A serial entrepreneur who wears multiple hats, Brett is the co-director of the Mayflower Autonomous Ship 400 project and the founder and chief executive of the Submergence Group and MSUBS. In addition, he is one of three founding board members of Pumari, a nonprofit 501c3 organization that advocates for marine exploration around the globe. In our first episode of the Imagination series, Brett and I discuss the inspiration for the Mayflower 400, his career path, and the ethical dilemma in data and AI governance. We start our conversation with Brett sharing the inception of the Mayflower 400. Mayflower 400, what we, we call it Mayflower Autonomous Ship or Mayflower 400, depending on who you are, or the MAS 400. So my role in that is I was sort of the chief uh, instigator of, of uh, nonsense and stupidity. So I, <laughs> I, I had the idea. I was in a meeting with folks here in Plymouth, UK, the city government, you know, 2016. One of the things we were just chit-chatting in the margins about the coming 400th anniversary in 2020 and how the city wanted to do something big. And, and, and there was a proposal kind of kicking around about building a replica. And I, I wasn't particularly enthused um, because, they, first of all, the, there is a replica of the original Mayflower, the Mayflower 2, and that's in Plymouth, Massachusetts. It was built in the UK and sailed across in like 57 and given to the people of the United States. So, so I said, well, look, that's been done. And also, you know, what, what do you get out of that? You know, you get a 17th century ship. We should be thinking about that. What we really should focus on, what does the next 400 years of the maritime enterprise look like, right? And why is it important? And how do we speak to it? And so maybe put ourselves in the mindset of, it's impossible to do, but you could try at least over 400 years from now, when people look back, if they do at this moment, what is the thing we would do now that those people in the future would, would find inspirational maybe, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, that's an autonomous vessel. And it's sort of an outgrowth of other work I do in the defense sector, building manned underwater vehicles and unmanned underwater vehicles for 25 years and oceanographic and climatological research in grad school. And mm-hmm. so it's that, and also I grew up not far from Plymouth, Massachusetts. And now I live in Plymouth, England. And so it's sort of, I'm like bookended with my Plymouths on each end of my life. And I've got a technological and oceanographic and historical sort of facets to my personality. And I was already deeply interested in autonomy and AI, mm-hmm. even sort of more, you know, from a philosophical perspective, how do we know what we know, right? Like, why are we alive? Not, not epistemology, but more ontology. It's sort of the, the, the roots of consciousness and how uh, organic consciousness differs from so profoundly machine-based systems, the analytical systems, whether that kind of general AI is possible. And those are kind of interesting philosophical arguments, but so I've, in my business life, I'm more of an applied research guy. So I, so I had already gone down the path of, well, we got to build a, you know, practical applications of build things that live out in the world that are autonomous and learn from them in a very practical way through meaningful interaction over time. So we, we decided to build the Mayflower Autonomous Ship 
2016. And we really focused the first four or five years of our work on building infrastructure to collect data. Mm -hmm. uh, so we said, you know, the AI is the hard part. So, so we've got to start thinking about that. So we know we have to have lots of data that we have to make into models. So we started setting up infrastructure all around Plymouth Sound at sea, on offshore structures, on small boats, um, and vessels, um, collecting copious amounts of data, tagging data, and then being able to auto-label data, building engines to auto-label data based on um, our initial model structures. And did that over, well, it's ongoing now, we're in year six of it. And at the same time, we started talking about this vision of an autonomous ship and how it would be useful and that it's sort of an end-to-end all-encompassing all multifaceted research program. So there's the AI sort of side of it, the machine learning side of the edge computing side of it. There's the space side of it where we have the space tech and communications and distribution of data through space-based assets and tracking of the, sub, of, the, of the vehicle through assets and through space-based assets and cooperative research with space-based assets, looking at ocean health and meteorology, climatology. And then there's the sort of oceanographic and meteorological component of the vessel, you know, what's in the water, what's under the water, you know, what's the temperature, what's the conductivity, what's the, you know, fluorometry, the chlorophyll, the planktonic content, is there microplastics, right? Mm -hmm. or, or what's the chemical composition? Where are there cetaceans and pinnipeds, you know, mam marine mammals, where the, you know, all these kinds of things, right, that you want to find out, and then some meteorological data with two weather stations on it. So it took many years of talking to people and getting, giving presentations about it. And through my nonprofit that was set up about 20 years ago, to get some base funding, and we did some crowdfunding. And then IBM saw it and thought, hey, that's super cool. And so we stand on sort of on their technology platform, but they've helped us build our tools and systems right. in a way you could sort of practically deploy it. And then, and now we, you know, just in the past three months when we had our initial attempt to cross and it failed and we brought it back and we've done refits. And now we took the opportunity to change out the edge compute devices and we've quadrupled the compute power on the edge in three months. Right. So that kind of stuff is like mind boggling. Right, right, right. And so, so now we have lots of capability and it's all about how do you apply that effectively to do a task? So it's, it's really kind of multifaceted. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of, you know, societal and philosophical questions about what are people doing and do we want robotic systems and, and how do people interact with them? How do they interact with man vessels? Do we need more of these? Do we need more man vessels? Is the, AI that we're building to navigate? Is it something we'd want to put on manned vessels to help people be safer? Um, what does port infrastructure look like? What does international regulation look like for this kind of thing? Because it's new. And all these all sort of questions that you're still yeah. contemplating. And yeah, and we still have to figure it out. And so my answer was, well, you, you, you want to push on all the soft spots, build something, right? Build a thumbtack that people step on. And they'll do something about it, right? And so yeah, yeah. we built a really lovely thumbtack, and it's it's forcing people to engage. You know, the U.S. Coast Guard unbelievably forward leaning and helpful. Um, they said, "Well, we don't have any regulations on this, so we're going to take this opportunity to help figure out what they should be." The U.K. Coast Guard took a 
there are no regulations on this, so you can't do it and we're going to punish you if you try. It, but they're, they're learning, they're coming along. There's, there's a lot of ethical talk now and regulations for innovation with AI. And I mean, th- this is one, one of the prime examples and it's really, really fascinating to, to just see it. Yeah. All. But what is ethical AI though? You know, I kind of think about this a lot. I mean, you know, it depends on what your perspective on AI is. I look at it this way, which is, it's not artificial intelligence because it's not truly intelligent. It's augmented intelligence. And so instead of thinking about it in terms of how it displaces people, you should think about it in terms of how it helps us to be better people, right? It helps us be better people. And there's myriad ways where this is true. So just as you would not want traffic in a major city managed by a, a person standing on a podium in the middle of an intersection, waving their arms or manually changing colored placards, mm-hmm. Traffic management is a great example of incredibly sophisticated, ubiquitous automation and engineering, right? That we live with all the time. Don't even think about it. Doesn't bother you. You're not thinking about any of that when you're driving around a city. You look at the evolution of smart sensors in cars that do emergency braking and lane keeping and driver warning and driver assistance. I mean, that's a great example of an emerging technology that will become more and more ubiquitous and sophisticated that helps us be better at all these things we want to do every day. And we should, we should use machine learning and AI systems to help us take those almost impenetrable masses of data that are beyond human comprehension in terms temporally, right? And reduce them to actionable information that can be integrated into the total corpus of knowledge about how our planet works. And it's using these technologies helps us liberate a part of our intellect that is so much more important than the ability to hold in your mind volumes of data. And that's the insight, which is something computers don't do, right? So these are augmented intelligence, right? So what are the jobs that people should be training for? People are graduating university. I deal with this every day trying to hire people are graduating university every day who their entire life were taught how to plug things into a program that will output an answer but they when it but they don't understand why the thing is as it is right all those formulas have been derived before Mm -hmm. and so they get an answer and you know one of my 60 year old engineers who worked in a machine shop and worked in a foundry and you know came up in this well, look at the answer that comes out and goes, wait a minute, that, that can't be right because I know steel doesn't, that type of steel shouldn't yield there, for example. But we get a lot of people who come out with engineering degrees, advanced degrees who are like, well, but the answer is this. It's like, yes, but it's clearly wrong. <laughs> like you got to go back and look at, yeah. but because there's no real understanding of even basic first principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is super interesting. This is dope. You know, it's a real problem in society. And that's actually the ethical dilemma with AI, right? That is the actual ethical dilemma that no one wants to talk about. It obviates the need for people to actually know things. I think that the need right now, because, you know, in curriculums, there, there are a lot of, let's say, like online things, boot camps, or even educational institutions that are popping up these degrees. You leave with people trained as like, 
data scientists or machine learning engineers and they learn how to plug and chug models in, but they don't understand yep, the it. inner workings of the model um, so that they can well, question it and understand. Well, I'll give you a great example. I, we built a submarine for a client, but a, for a military client, a very large defense corporation that considers itself beyond reproach was involved in analyzing uh, the hypothetical performance of the vehicle. Mm -hmm. They had done a computational fluid dynamic and hydrodynamic analysis and uh, based on a model of the vehicle they created from our drawings and told us that the turning radius was uh, almost a mile, like just on like 1.6 kilometers at flank speed. And they're presenting this to the government and to us and how this was problematic. And, you know, obviously we're going to have to go back and do redesign. And I said, but, but it's wrong. And they said, well, no, but we've run the, we've run this several times now. And it's, this is the best we could come up with. And, and I said, yeah, but I drive the submarine and <laughs> the turning radius is like a hundred meters. I said, but I think you, I think you have an extra zero. I think you're off by an order of magnitude. And they said, no, that can't be right. The model says this. I said, yeah, but are we really going to debate whether your model is more right than reality? <laughs> Because like reality wins every time. And what you should be saying is, that's weird. We need to go back and figure out why there's a flaw in the assumption that underpins this model. Yeah. Because clearly reality is right. And they couldn't say they were wrong because they probably spent half a million dollars making this model. <laughs> right. And no, quite honestly. And so this is a problem, not just from the education system, but all the way through industry now. I think that the, the real ethical dilemma in AI is not, is it going to displace people from work? I think what displaces people from work is the fact that they don't bother to educate themselves. And generally, we don't bother to properly educate them in the things that truly matter. And we are wildly distracted as human beings. So the ethical dilemma will be, is AI exacerbating that problem because it does too much for us? Or does AI actually help us be more insightful and creative by eliminating certain elements of our existence that we don't need to devote as much thought to? And it's probably, the answer is probably both. Mm -hmm. And I would say that that is no different than the emergence of any major technology over the past couple of centuries. Like one, one of the questions that, that I had immediately as, as you were speaking is because your career, I think the, the way that you've spoken about it, the trajectory, it didn't involve AI at first, right? It was just things that you were thinking about. You were doing things that you were also interested in. And so yet at the same time, you know, in speaking with you, you speak with like such depth and sort of philosophically about AI. And so would you mind just like sharing how you kind of, put all your interests and curiosities and passions into one to, to focus it now into like, I wouldn't say I'm focused. I'd say that's, I'm like my own. <laughs> so, all right. So the really bizarre thing about all this is I'm actually an anthropologist uh -huh. by training. And so I'm, I started off in physics, ended up leaving university, going to the military, came out, studied classics and classical history, and archeology span and anthropology. And that's what my degree is in. 
I went back for a master's in nautical and marine archaeology and then moved to geophysics and oceanography and worked towards a PhD there, but never finished it and ended up starting a research company and kind of went out. So into various bizarre trajectories in the nonprofit world and then in the defense contracting and offshore oil and gas and, and subsea research and all sorts of things that afforded me the opportunity to do things that are profoundly expensive that I could never afford to do to try to learn new things about my environment, right? And along the way, having a background in anthropology was really, really useful in dealing with sort of the culture of the military and business and oil and gas and different kind of places and things and people and sort of subcultures that have their own sort of dynamic, right? But so I'm an anthropologist. So I'm really interested mostly and probably why I talk about things like in a philosophical way is because I'm interested in, in people, right? I love technology. I'm really interested in that. Yeah. So more and more my interest in AI is around these really strange sort of almost slightly off sort of arguments about whether or not something is ethical, sort of, it, they all feel like they missed the point. Like they're striking a target, like slightly off center of the actual ethical argument, right? Like you connect the dots, but your conclusion ends up. Just yeah, like- you're kind of hitting like the second ring out, right? You're not in the bullseye. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think I'm in the bullseye. So maybe that's <laughs> not narcissistic, but um, I, I, I sort of see it that way. But it's, I read a lot, um, a lot, right? And I, I, I try to read at least I've, I've had the pleasure and the privilege in my life to be able to read um, as part of my education and my job, sort of a really broad range of historical and philosophical and archaeological and technological and political and fiction. And do, do you know what I mean? So really broad, and I still do. And lately, all that sort of along with the, the work I do to put food on the table and the Mayflower project has kind of dredged up all this sort of interest in all the little disparate parts of my life that sort of now I kind of say, oh, well, I can see how I got here now because I'm looking back. Longitude of Imagination series provides its listeners an opportunity to learn how professionals in different sectors approach imagination and how ideas turn into action for the good of humanity. As the Mayflower 400 project continues to grow, Brett and the teams at Promare and IBM will need to continually address both technical and social concerns of artificial intelligence and its use cases. From building efficient data pipelines to an autonomous ship that can survive whatever it may encounter at sea, Brett and the Mayflower 400 team will not only be involved in improving the ship's capabilities, but also have active voices in shaping new regulations and policies in autonomous AI and ocean research. When Brett credited his imagination and thoughts on AI towards his non-traditional and diverse education, it really resonated with me, as I often find many parallels between learning data science and classical music. It's inspiring to see how Brett, who is an anthropologist by training, draw from his studies in physics, classical history, archaeology, and oceanography for the Mayflower 400. After our conversation, I agree that domain knowledge is perhaps the most important skill needed to contribute towards a project of this size and scope.
We hope you enjoyed today's segment. Please feel free to share your thoughts over social media and in the comments, or write to us at podcast at longitude.site. We would love to hear from you. Join us next time for more unique insights on Longitude Soundbites.